0: Hello, my name's Hunter and you're Yeah, hi uh,
1: how how you do today buddy doing well the Sun's out it's 3 in the afternoon I don't have to work today hmm today you mean you're back at work what yes apparently I am somehow the sandwich factory survived the uh, the economic downturn the, the non-activity that has been Victoria over the past couple of months. Mm. Although they are down to three days of production a week. Oh, well, that's too bad. I worked all all three of them last week. Um, and I have uh, two shifts this week. Mm. And also, I worked the three shifts last week. Haven't been paid yet. It's good, isn't it? Pretty lame, bro. Not just because I'm at the wrong end of the the pay cycle, just because they seem to have neglected to pay me. (laughs) Probably should uh, do something about that. I feel like someone not getting paid, like in the current climate, should uh, inspire more more urgency and problem solving on their part. But no, still I'm being paid. The person who, Does the payroll stuff, I believe, was sick on Friday. Mm. So they didn't get back to me by email. But it's Monday now. It's 3 p.m. They still have not got back to me by email. Still have not been paid.
0: Mm.
1: I even have photos of of my uh, time slip. So they can't say, oh, you must not have uh, clocked on. Oh, I clocked on. What's my story? What's been happening with you? No, well, you know, just, just working. I have been paid. You have been paid? Many times. What's your pay cycle? Weekly? Yep. Nice. Yeah.
0: All right, uh, so what are we doing on this podcast today?
1: What are we doing on this podcast today?
0: All right, we're talking about the uh, great film. I guess I spoiled my opinions on it a little bit. Sorry about that. Oh, well, we could just we could just can, we could just cancel the the show. Yeah,
1: cancel the episode.
0: No, no, the, the podcast. We both loved it. Co-signed recommendation. Mm, okay, uh, we talk about the uh, mystery film <laughs> by one of our favorite director writers. People, creatives, theater. Uh, what what can't this man do? You know, you 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 look at these credits. You, have you seen this man's credits? What can what can he do? What can he do? Am I right? There is no limit. He wrote theater. He tra- He's directed movies. He's, he's instructed a master class. He's written millions of episodes of television. He's a, he's a genius. His name is Aaron Sorkin, and we're going to talk about his new movie, uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Is that what it's called? That is what it was called, yes. All right. Uh, so uh,
1: should we uh, hop, hop straight into it? Are you, are you ready? Let's do it. I know you're angry, I'm angry too, take your anger and put it to use in for years' time.
0: So I guess you should uh, talk a little bit about what this movie is, uh, what the, the narrative of this film is, right?
1: Yes, and as the resident American on the podcast, I feel that you're better qualified <laughs> to provide the historical context for this uh, story.
0: Oh, I think he, I think you would be wrong, but uh, relative <laughs> just, to me, <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. So, 1968 Democratic Convention, right? Yes. Uh, memory, sir. So, when did Johnson, who was the president before, uh, I think he competed in like one or two things or something like that, but he announced that he was not going to seek re election. Mm-hmm. So, there's kind of a heated primary race. And, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of assumed it would be Robert F. Kennedy. He was, uh, you know, kind of the obvious favorite to, uh, fucking ticket, but, uh, probably he got. Yeah, yeah, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, he got a uh, uh, gun. Uh, bla- he got blasted with a gun several times before he could. Uh, he got
1: JFK'd.
0: Mm. Yeah, and then he got assassinated by the CIA. <laughs> just, like his, <laughs> just like his brother. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> you, you think I'm kidding? <laughs> he got killed by probably some, you know, CIA working with the Bobby. I mean, there's not much of a difference between the CIA and the Bob, just to be clear. <laughs> anyway, uh, so eventually, uh, I guess at this point they hadn't quite decided who was going to be the, um, the nominee, but, uh, the likely favorite was an eventual nominee was, uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was actually from Minnesota. Hubie. Yeah. H- Hubie Halloween Humphrey. <laughs> uh, like I said, he is from Minnesota. So just like Hubie. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Hubie Doobie. Um, and I'm kind of a boring guy, and uh, basically, uh, you know, Vietnam War was going on, and people were getting drafted. Uh, it's a very unpopular war. I don't
1: know if you do this <laughs> about the Vietnam War. I, I think the problem was that Hubie's platform was uh, increased safety on Halloween, and <laughs> he had no other agenda. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, really, what the, the young people wanted was to end the war. I don't know. Was there a draft? I know that Australia participated in the Vietnam War. Was it? Was there a draft?
1: There was a draft in Australia as well.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so Vietnam War unpopular. Um, Vietnam War bad. All these, all these radical groups are converging on Chicago. Chicago, uh, in order to, um, you know, protest the war. Uh, and there are seven principal characters. <laughs> Basically, there's a you know demonstration that turned into a, a pretty bloody riot. Um, and led to the arrest of eight members of various radical groups. Um, I'm just going to spell real quick. Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Randy Davis, Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, Lee Weiner, John Freund, and Bobby Seale. Mm-hmm. And they basically got put on trial for inciting a riot. Uh, it was pretty obvious that, you know, uh, these charges were bullshit and that they were being persecuted for, you know, Political crime—the uh, crime of having the wrong politics—and um, their trial sort of became, a, you know, national news item. I don't know, dude. I feel so like I don't. I don't really care that much. <laughs> but anyway, so the film sort of takes this story and makes it into a movie, and that's, that's <laughs> what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> That it does (laughs) Alright, let me me try again This movie takes the story, injects a bunch of way too old actors to play these characters (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, takes uh, all the, you know, radical politics of the time And sort of uh, uh, makes it into a liberal courtroom
1: drama (laughs) Excuse me? Did I detect a a note of uh, criticism? Oh, no, of course not
0: uh, with with your typical sword for uh sword, sword flourishes. What else is there to say about this movie? So basically the the structure is that it basic the present day narrative of the film is All the Trial, which takes place in 1969 after uh Nixon had destroyed Hubert Humphrey. In part because he ran on a Wanwander campaign. Uh so
1: specifically centered around Halloween.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. Nixon, Nixon wanted, ran out of water order <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Maybe if Hubie had uh, you know made his water order year-round, was into it. So uh, yeah, so like I said, it as it, it takes the uh, courtroom antics and then includes several flashbacks and stuff to the actual Day of the protest, so we could see what really happened. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of kooky stuff, and that's the movie. Um, yeah,
1: you, what did you think about The Trial <laughs> to Chicago
0: 7? <laughs> oh boy.
1: Look, um, um, we kind of knew what we were getting into when we selected this film, right? Mm hmm. We both knew it was going to be, as the French say, terrible. <laughs> mm. No, <Nope. laughs> and, and it is. I'm, I'm happy to uh, to state that upfront, not string you along by pretending I, I thought this was a great film. Well, well, we might we might have a, a difference of opinion. <laughs> the the question of enjoyment is like a separate issue, really. But if we're just like if we're just looking to assess this film for what it's trying to do on its own terms. Uh, mm. I think it's it's garbage. <laughs> let's, let's, Quite frankly, let's let, let push that. let, let me push that out of. Uh, uh, let we push back on that a little bit. Go ahead, be my guest. So,
0: so if if we, I mean, I think we can both agree on this. The primary point of this film, all of Sorkin's work, is to make a you know dumb liberal political point, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think I, you know, I gotta say, uh, I I did I didn't like uh, hate this film. <laughs> Really? I do think it's I think it's politics or dumb, but mm. I thought it was I thought it was kind of entertaining. So <laughs> uh, I'll
1: give it a two and a half stars. <laughs> okay, that's it. Discussion over. <laughs> I kind of agree with you in the sense that I don't think it was boring, despite the fact that it was like mm. two hours and ten minutes. That's honestly that was
0: maybe maybe my uh, enjoyment of it was sort of predicated on that because you know I just assumed this movie was going to be a torture. I thought it was going to be really boring. You know. In the way that, like, suit, all, all the bad-ups of the Studio 60 and the as were you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, no, it's full of incident. Uh, and I thought I thought some of the sequences were... Well, basically, all the courtroom stuff is, like, whatever, I, who cares? But I thought some of the protest sequences were directed. Okay, you know?
1: Oh, I have the complete opposite reaction, to be honest. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. Um, I, thought, I thought, like, uh, this really shows Sorkin's limitations as a director. So... This started life as a film that was going to be directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh-huh. Um, still from a Sorkin script. Mm. And in fact, I think Sasha Baron-, Baron Cohen's casting dates back that far as well.
0: Back for it to make sense for him to be cast in the role.
1: But yeah, exactly. Where I think I
0: think Sasha Baron Cohen is closer to the age that Abby Hoffman died at than his age in the movie.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, at one point, Will Smith was also attached, so... It is. It is. It is tempting to to imagine like a more successful Spielberg directed version of this film. Mm. And I think well, certainly would
0: of a Winkum?
1: Yeah, it would. I think not that I've seen that particular film, but I, I'm I'm familiar <laughs> enough I. with uh, <laughs> what Spielberg's capabilities are. That I think that would this would have made for a, a superior. I mean, his mm. direction would have made for a superior film on its own terms, because Sorkin definitely lacks. Um, Spielberg's deft touch, even mm, as he possesses a similar weakness for the sentimental, and I would say an even greater weakness for the sanctimonious. Mm. um Cinematically, I don't think as a director, Sorkin has a touch so much as a, a bludgeon. And when your your film takes place largely in a courtroom, you you really need to know what you're doing behind the camera. Yeah, uh, sure. and I, and this is where I disagree with you because I think even the more like obviously visual aspects to the story, which is the recreations of the protests themselves, I thought were pretty poorly staged. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just uh, I thought they were fine. I don't know. Just like the, the intercutting of the uh, newsreel footage to the scenes that um, Sorkin had actually recreated, I think showed how how poorly staged that his version was. It just oh, yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it never it was didn't, seamless. It didn't capture the mayhem or excitement of, of what it would actually be like to be in the in the midst of that conflict with the police at that Yeah, I I agree that, that, that
0: the the parts where it contrasts it feel very uh uh you know there's something missing from the footage that he shot, but I thought on their own terms they were okay. So I don't know what to say besides that. I just don't know. I just don't know why he bothered to include the uh, newsreel footage. I know
1: exactly why he bothered to do that. Well, because for, for
0: he's trying to historicize it, but I mean, it just makes his his versions of it seem so much worse, you know.
1: No, he was apparently doing an Affleck. So um, oh. there, I watched a little video, a little video entitled like "Inside." aaron sorkin's mind or something uh in relation to this film and he talked about the mm. fact that yeah he was inspired by what um ben affleck did with argo which was well, intercut- ben Affleck
0: is the greatest filmmaker of all time so of I course really, of course so really who wouldn't be inspired that. by him yeah. yeah
1: um but in that film um affleck intercuts shots of the protest uh from uh, not, not the protest shots of the uprising from newsreel footage mm. And then close, close up shots of the actual conflict itself. So there's kind of a, um, that he had Mm. recreated, sorry. So there's kind of a continuity between the newsreel footage and his actual footage, right? It's going for that documentary style and, um, the sort of documentary style that you would get if you were trying to actually capture the protest on film and you were like trying to keep up with everything around you and everything was really close Mm. by as if you were a a cameraman in the midst of the action. And that's Mm. what Sorkin is going for here. Less successful than, than Affleck's version. Um, I've, never said, I've never
0: seen Argo because, uh, you know, I'm a Chad and I don't have time for stuff like
1: that. Fair enough. But I, I was actually thinking about this and more so than thinking about the fact that a Spielberg version would be better. I think it would also be better and certainly more interesting if this was a Spike Lee film. Mm. It definitely feels like there's a lot of things that Spike Lee could have done with this material. That's true. But he didn't direct it. But he didn't direct it. So. No. From the get go of this film, I think I think you really do see how sort of uh, prosaic Sorkin is a, as a filmmaker. Yeah. So it opens with this like what I would call an auto montage. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> of that was pretty. That was pretty. The sixties of this like newsreel footage establishing the context of the time
0: Oh, watch people get killed Oh, Robert F. Kennedy got killed Martin Luther King got killed There is unrest The Vietnam War
1: And then we have this terrible thing he does where he intercuts the the eight defendants mm. as they prepare to travel to Chicago and they kind of finish one another's sentence to reflect their differing perspectives That was, that was very labored yeah. I would say but uh, I think I think
0: uh, you know more so than the direction, which is which is I think I, I think prosaic is the right word for it.
1: I think this the script of this film is really bad. <laughs> yes, but there uh, before before I get too critical, mm. in terms of enjoyment, there are so many enjoyable things that happen in this film. <laughs> that's
0: that's definitely true. We got to talk about the we got to talk about the single most enjoyable thing. I think we get, I think we'll agree on this which is the absolutely
1: bizarre accent that Sacha Baron Cohen has for the entire movie. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Yeah, so like his accent was so bizarre and so seemingly terrible that I genuinely began to wonder if it wasn't in fact like incredibly specific and maybe maybe Abby Hoffman really spoke like this. So I looked up some clips this morning of him speaking. Uh, Sounds absolutely nothing like whatever Cohen is doing or trying to do here.
0: I mean, it's a, it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a combination of like stereotypical American Jewish accent, right? Mixed, mixed with like, you know, a, a complete failure to <laughs> cover up his English accent in parts, you know, and a over, an overcompensation for that. And also, sometimes it just dips into
1: like Southern for some reason. It,
0: it seems to be an accent that does not exist in the real world.
1: I, un- I do understand why he was cast. Like, for his presence.
0: Yeah, because Abby Offens, his appeal, is he was kind of a stand-up comedian in some ways.
1: But the thing is, like, I think he, they should have got an American stand-up comedian. Because, for one thing, Sacha Bancurin is not a stand-up comedian. So, <laughs> um, In terms of some of the other performances, uh, the other British person, at least, that I'm aware of, Eddie Redmayne. Not,
0: not uh, as embarrassing, but not. A,
1: he just looks constipated the entire time. <laughs> he does a credible accent, even though yeah. I, I can't say how accurate it was. Um, but I will yeah, say I he does know. fall into this very Sorkin esque speech rhythm, mm. kind of similar to the way um, Nate Caudry channels Bradley Whitford in Studio Sixty.
0: Mm. But Th- Thomas Hayden, the, ca- the character, is also kind of the stereotypical
1: like. Sorkid character, idealist, right? He so. is, yeah. But like, if the the fact that he goes for those very specific uh, rhythms, yeah. Um, yeah, just had you reminded me of of any Sorkin protagonist, really. Mm. So, like, in terms of the way this this tells the story, I will I will concede that it's kind of a difficult story to distill into a two hour film.
0: There are a lot of complicated players, different organizations, which. You know, in fairness to the baddest of the film, Sorkin does almost nothing to distill the individual essence of.
1: No, no. Like, it, it, is, it is a tricky thing to dramatize for, for a few reasons. So the meat of the story is the trial. That's, that's where the drama mm. is. Like, there's the protest itself um, and the confrontation with the Chicago police, but that's dissected, like, in the courtroom. So you can't really mm. show it at the start of the film and then go through it again throughout the trial. Uh, or at least you can't do that without it being repetitive or exhausting. But yeah. if, you, if you held that back, it, it creates another problem because you're kind of thrown into the middle of the story without having been acquainted acquainted with the defendants. So I think Sorkin kind of hedges his bets a little here because we get that opening montage where we do get some introduction to the characters and their perspectives as they travel to Chicago before the the trial commences. But honestly, I couldn't help, but feel that it would have been strengthened if those scenes were omitted, and we were kind of dropped into the trial cold. And then the personalities were revealed by the mechanisms of the courtroom. And then he Mm. goes a little bit deeper into revealing them than he actually does in the final product. Because I think that with, with no context, as a viewer, you already understand that we don't yet know these people and that it's going Mm. to be revealed. Like that would be pretty clear to any viewer, but here we kind of get some introduction and then we're in the trial and it's a little bit disorienting. At least it was for me. Um, Mm. because we have seen some of these people, but we're still kind of trying to piece together who they are and getting ahead of the story a little bit when we should just sit back and let that be revealed as it comes to us. Mm. Um, and I think the other issue is that the the court case, as it played out, and as court cases often play out, didn't really have a satisfying narrative arc, or at least a traditional narrative no. arc. That's so true. this kind of ends up being a, a bit of a plotting retelling, mm. um, and kind of the biggest dramatic moment occurs like at the halfway mark, which is centered around um, Bobby Seal.
0: In a in a moment that was. Uh- <laughs> Complete, kind of invented for the
1: film to some degree. <laughs> At least the context of it was yeah. As the as the title suggests, Bobby Seale ends up being like a somewhat marginal presence in the story. Kind of in the real life trial itself, as well. Yeah, although like like it's definitely true that he was eventually excluded from the trial.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Not so much that he was a marginal figure in the like national events that surrounded him.
1: No. But I I read this in an interview with Sorkin about it that um, he finished the film essentially. Then there were the post-George Floyd protests. (laughs) And he made a late alteration to the film by inserting the the police images of Fred Hampton's Hampton's house after he'd been shot by police. Yeah. Those, like, forensic images. Mm. And... I think, I think Bobby Seale's inclusion in the trial and, uh, what happens in the courtroom and his association with Fred Hampton are in many ways, the most significant aspects of the story. And I think because he exits the trial partway through, and honestly, it's not afforded much of a character by Sorkin, the inclusion of like the forensic images feels like exactly what it is. It's an afterthought. Yeah. And it's funny that,
0: you know, there's there's that line where it's like, oh, you know, I, I'm up here to make the, 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 you know, people afraid of you because you're associating with like a black guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of what, you know, I mean, not, it doesn't have say emotional titter but that's that's kind of what the function that Bobby Seale and Fred Hampton serve with the story and the film, you know, to give it, to make
1: it feel more relevant, which is just kind of pathetic. Well, yeah, uh, the, in the same video that I watched, uh, Wes Sorkin was talking about his process for this. He didn't want there to be too many uh, obvious, like, 60s signifiers in terms of the production design and the costumes because he's like, this is a story about now. So that was that was definitely where he's coming from.
0: <laughs> All right, buddy. You know, I, I must say, I, I didn't really see much resonance with our, our, the present moment that we live in <laughs> in this film. <laughs> Um, just because unlike, uh, the Chicago seven, I mean, there's been plenty of protesters who've been arrested, you know, in conjunction mm-hmm. with the, the protest following the death of the, the murder of George, George Floyd. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's no, been no scapegoating of a movement this way. There's been no national attention paid to the, the specific trials or anything like that, you know? No. And also, I mean, it's just the, the tenor of the protests is so different than the ones that are depicted in this film you know, which were, you know, these highly coordinated and, like, almost, like, years-long projects, right? Mm. Versus the quasi-spontaneous nature of of the uh, current, like, Black Lives Matter protests.
1: Mm. So, I think, uh, speaking of characterization, uh, we should probably talk about the the characterization of the prosecutor, Richard Schultz. Oh, God. Which is one of the film's most amusing missteps, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... Sorkin's already received some criticism for this. This is, this is like, such the, uh...
0: This is, this is the, like... I mean, of course Sorkin's going to do this, right? This is uber
1: Sorkin. Do you want to explain <laughs> yeah. what he does to this character?
0: <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, I have no idea about the real guy. I assume he was just, like, a, a government stooge who sucked cock, but... <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about him. <laughs> uh, but he, he decides to, um... <laughs> it's basically the liberal fantasy of the respectable Republican, who you know you can reach, right?
1: Yeah, like from the get go, like when he's first uh, given the job, uh,
0: basically he's he, he you know he's shown to be sort of a reluctant presence on the uh, prosecutor's team at first, you know. Yes, he's, he's just doing his job to the best part, but he, he slowly seems to uh, find himself swayed by the defendant's arguments, and and. Even at the end, he, he's he's willing to condemn the court for for being out of line, which is which is some dumb shit. I have to say, the ending um. to this film,
1: mwah, beautiful. <laughs> I, I was in, I was I was in tears of, of laughter. <laughs> Pretty funny. So the real prosecutor was recently interviewed uh, in the wake of the film, and. Um, this was already, I think, this was already pretty clear in the in the public record anyway. But he stated that he was in no way embarrassed or conflicted about his duty as a prosecutor in the trial. <laughs> in, the, in the trial, nor did he believe they didn't have much of a case, which is what the the Joseph Gordon-Levitt Levitt virgin conveys when he takes the case. Uh pretty funny. He also stated in the in the interview that. Um, Bobby Seale's restrainment in the courtroom was an inevitability based on his (laughs) behaviour and even suggested it was a conscious tactic of the defence. So, there you go. That's what the real dude had to say. That's so funny, I love it. Uh, There's a couple of funny things with Eddie Redmayne's um, character. So, at one point after the public incident where um, Bobby Seale is restrained in the courtroom and gagged, Someone hands a note around to the other defendant saying, don't stand for the judge at the end of the, the session, right? Mm. And uh, everyone obeys that except for Eddie Redmayne's character. What's his name? Tom Hayden.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Future husband of Shane Fonda.
1: He like stands up automatically and then, and then sort of shame, uh, ashamedly sits down. Mm. Then they go to like the house of the former district attorney. And, uh, an African-American maid opens the door <laughs> and she, as they get led into the room, she's like, why did you stand for the judge after he did that thing to Bobby C. I thought that was really funny. It's
0: like, yeah, as if that happened. <laughs> that actually, that actually kind of reminded me of the, uh, the most cringe-inducing moment of, uh, <laughs> little women of all things. Mm. Oh, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's quite similar. Yeah. A similar flavor. Yeah. And then of course the ending which we should speak about in, in more detail but there's a couple of things related to that that I found really mm. funny as well. I, I I love the I love the bits
0: where uh, <laughs> There's two lines that Sorkin gives Abby Hoffman that I thought were absolute hours.
1: Mm. <laughs> I mean,
0: it's so funny that Sorkin felt the need to turn like, you know, someone who had pretty ra- radical politics especially in the context of the United States of America, which is a, you know, pretty conservative country overall, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and felt the need to just turn him into, like, a standard liberal. <laughs> but the line where he's like, oh, I think our American institutes are great. It's just the people that are currently in there. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and and there is the other part where Joseph gordon says something like, do you really believe that we should, te- we should tear down the country and, and – <laughs> Baron Cohen as Abby Hobbs, like, huh? We do that every four years, and it's like, what? What the fuck? What is this? What is this shit?
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought they were funny too. Yeah, good wise. good wise. The the guy who's like with Eddie Redmayne, like his mm, the the cock version. <laughs> yeah, the little guy, R- Rady Davis with the bangs. But oh, that
0: shit, that shit with this is so stupid. That, that has to be an invention, right? Yeah, this is
1: obviously an, this is such a socking invention. So early in the film we see him like writing in a notebook and someone's like, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm writing down the names of the, of each of the dead soldiers in Vietnam. So we don't forget what we're fighting for, you know, because this, this political trial is theater and we're going to get swept up into it. And we have to remember what we're, what we're trying to do here. So throughout the film, he's, he's writing down the names of the dead soldiers in his book. It just felt like the shittiest, like West wing type yeah. Yeah. subplot. And then at the end, the judge tells Tom Hayden, the Yeti Redman, uh, Guy, okay. if you are respectful and brief and polite um, and apologetic, <laughs> you know, uh, I'll be lenient in terms of your sentence, right? <laughs> it does
0: kind of like seem like he's doing like, a sketch comedy routine where he's like, oh, yeah, if, if I'm respectful, <laughs> yeah, of course. In <laughs> brief, you said, right? <laughs>
1: <It's> good stuff. <laughs> And and we've seen Tom Hayden, like, conflicted throughout the film because he kind of wants to do the right thing. He's more of an upstanding citizen. He was initially going to be the mm. star witness until some conflicting evidence mm. came to light. I mean, some mm. damning evidence came to light. You know, and he, obviously he made the mistake of standing for the judge when everyone else refused to. Mm. So, you know, this is his chance to redeem himself, right? He's like, oh, so is that all I have to do, judge? Okay, then... John Davis Wilkins shot in Vietnam <laughs> John Wilkins so he starts yeah, so he starts reading off the names from this list that his friend has been writing throughout the film of all the all the people dead and everyone stands out of respect then the the whole uh, crowd at the courtroom stand and who else stands as well why it's Richard Schultz the prosecutor what, what? even though his boss is like what are you doing and he's like I'm respecting the fallen. <laughs> So funny. So <laughs> funny. Great. I was crying. That was, was great. <laughs> that, was, that was great. Loved it. That was really great.
0: That was good stuff. Good stuff. That
1: made that made it worth it, definitely. There's enough of those like, <laughs> so two bits throughout. So, great movie. Yeah, great movie.
0: Loved great it. Movie. <laughs> I also think the whole, like... Uh, I mean, I have no idea if this is true or not. I mean, it might be. But the... Um, the uh, uh, plot of like Tom Hayden getting arrested by the police because he's letting air out of the tires because Rudy Davis's like girlfriend is is uh, I meant to look that up as well. That sounds so dumb. Yeah, that can't be. I mean, real.
1: It might be true, but I, I, I very much doubt it. But anyway, I'd be curious to know. Yeah, so I, I thought I, I thought this was a bad film. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's 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 worth watching <laughs> for whatever you want to say about Sorkin. Mm. He can be entertaining. He sucks. Even at his worst, he is, right? He's, he's politically damaging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, I mean, like, he comes from a theatrical background and he knows kind of how to keep your interest. Mm. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm astonished that the approval rating for this film... So it's like over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah. I, I was also kind of mystified by that. I can I can understand why people give this a good review and are enjoying this, but I can't understand why there seem to be so few like outright hostile reviews or at least negative reviews. Well,
0: it's, you, you realize that the, the dominant American political class, right, or critical class is, is full of like dumb standard issue like liberal commentators. So the politics that are represented in this film is like kind of incoherent as they are or exactly what they want, right? Yeah. Um, I don't understand why someone who is of any political inclination would watch this movie and be like, I, I feel my politics are represented here. Because what what are the politics of this film, really? I, I didn't really, it's hard to like trace its like political message, right? <laughs> like, like you know, so- sometimes we need to to push against the unjust system, but, you know, God damn it, there are good people in all parts of the U.S. government and, and, and our institutions will be what saves us, even if there's a couple bad actors in them, you know? Yeah. That's, that seems to be the primary message, which I disagree with, personally. And I <laughs> I, I, I would argue quite the opposite, In fact that our uh, our, our political institutions are designed to, uh, you know, <laughs> propagate uh, evil in the world. <laughs> and uh, the, the fact is, no matter how many quote-unquote good people you install in there, including people like Ramsey Clark, who uh, we didn't really talk about, but like was like their two B star What is He seems like a pretty, you know, decent guy. He was like a, associated with like, you know, various like left wing or organizations over his over his years over the years. Um, you know, not no one remembers who he is. I mean obviously like I'm sure that the Wyndon Johnson's uh Justice Part was better than fucking Richard Nixon's, but it still fucking sucks. I mean, there's no changing that, you know. He also defended uh he's also part of the defense team for uh State, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, Swoboda so you know.
1: I've actually come to the realization that, that Sorkin belongs in the category of filmmakers in which your Tarantinos and your Smiths also reside. Kevin, that is, and Quentin. What, what uh, categorization is that? Just think about it. So, all three are filmmakers known for witty dialogue exchanges, mm. right? All three broke through in the early 90s in some capacity. Mm. Obviously, Sorgon has only started directing of late, but nonetheless, he's still involved. Mm. But I think that the two most significant traits they they all share, all three share, are these. So one, they tend to treat their characters like mouthpieces, which is to say too many of their characters sound like the one person. And it's kind of the idealised voice of their Creator. And when you hear Sorkin speak, when you hear Smith speak, when you hear Tarantino speak, you do hear the rhythm of their character's speech. Mm. And it could be quite disconcerting watching their films um, with that context in mind. And the other trait is creative stagnation. So I would, I would argue that, the, that all arrived on the scene pretty close to fully formed. So they each mm. had a hard ceiling on their talents. And they were pretty near...
0: I I, I don't agree. No, I mean... You you cannot agree,
1: but but let me say it. They were all (laughs) pretty near... They were all pretty near that ceiling from the beginning. Mm. So in in terms of filmmaking, Tarantino does sit in in a different league, a higher league, definitely. There's no question about that compared to Sorkin and and Smith. And I do think he, you know, developed certainly across his first three films. But nonetheless, they're all practitioners of, of of a signature style who have earned, or quote unquote, earned the right to indulge themselves in this phase of their career? I think the results speak for themselves. Um,
0: clearly, Tarantino a better filmmaker than Kevin. He
1: Smith. is. I agree, but but they do ha- they could kind of fall in the same category.
0: And I, I don't. I think I, I I completely disagree with you. I think that uh, <laughs> Tarantino's uh, you know the, yes, there, there's a certain style that he developed in, in his first three films. You know. Which obviously, climax with Jackie Brown, but I think uh, Kill Bill is kind of a nadir of his career. I think you agree, I, agree. This. And then, I think it's uh, the nadir you know, of every filmmaker's career. I, I don't agree with that. I but, think it's uh, the
1: nadir of filmmaking.
0: No, I think uh, I think that for me personally, uh, I think after that sort of disaster, <laughs> uh, Tarantino sort of turned a corner and sort of making more interesting films than The Glorious Bastards. Uh, which, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a dip with Django and chain, but...
1: Yes, he improved after his nadir. That's the definition <laughs> of a nadir.
0: <laughs> uh, he improved significantly after it. Suck my dick. Uh, I can like whatever I like. And, uh, you should so, and I can dislike, dislike whatever, whatever I about. dislike. That's true. That's true. We should suck uh, one another's dick. That's the only solution. <laughs> uh, the problem is we're, we're too far away from each other. Damn it. Um... Kill Bill is bad. <laughs> I could I can agree with you on this. Yeah, it's tough. I, I, I've I've turned the corner on that film, um, but I think Aquarius Bastards, and The Hateful Eight and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are all great films. So disagree. I haven't that's, seen that's The Hateful Eight, but I will, just so I can say that's, I don't like it. <laughs> that, that's no fine. other reason. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but Eric Aaron circuit sucks, and nothing that he does is good. So wait. <laughs> That I think the social network isn't bad, but that's more because of Ventures like direction and it is, yeah. Storkins, you know, whatever. And I never gonna, I'm never gonna write or watch his other directorial uh, effort because it sounds terrible.
1: I was actually reading. This is one of the few negative reviews I just came across for uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven. Mm-hmm. But um, the writer made a reference to the fact that the reason the social network worked is because. Sorkin was like focused on a character that he wasn't like trying to present as like an idealized, yeah, definitely. Uh, figure that he kind of that espoused his own personal <laughs> views, <laughs> yeah,
0: because that's not only one of his films that doesn't sort of have like a liberal ideology at all.
1: No, there's no, there's no Sorkin mouthpiece of that movie at all, at least from memory. So it, so, it kind of draws out Sorkin's strength, if you will, and we can argue if this is much of a strength or if he's particularly good at it. In, in like crafting the dialogue of intelligent people, like intelligent discourse, and hyper intelligent manic people, mm. and taking away that kind of sanctimonious element of uh, having mm. having these mouthpieces. So maybe that's why it works. But like probably largely because David Fincher directed it. It would have been a piece of mm. shit if Aaron Sorkin directed the. Or probably like most
0: it. most people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fincher was definitely the right person for that movie. He definitely was. Yeah.
1: And I say yeah. that as someone who's not a huge Fincher, Fincher fan, but I I, I like yeah. what he brought to that film.
0: Yeah, I think I think that uh, the the thing that makes that movie good is that it, 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 it because of of both Fincher and Sorkin. I mean, Sorkin clearly thinks Mark Zuckerberg sucks, <laughs> but uh, I think Fincher both loves and kind of admires him to some degree, and that makes the film ambiguous in an interesting way. Anyway. We're not talking about the social network, we're talking about the child of the Chicago 7. We're almost done talking about it, I think, unless we wanna add some more dots to it. I'm done talking about it. I have nothing else to say except for that you know, maybe you should watch it. It's it's kinda funny, so.
1: Yep, now it's time for what's the segment called? So, uh, yeah, now it's time for a bout of trivia, a bout of the trial of the Chicago 7-related trivia. Mm. So we're going to play a little game where we each ask one another three questions related to the film, and uh, if the person who is being asked the question gets the answer incorrect, they must take a drink of liquor.
0: But if they get it right, then the question asker must take a drink of liquor.
1: Oh, is that right? Okay. Yep. <laughs> I'm
0: glad. I'm glad that I'm glad that both of us had approximately fifty percent of what the second was supposed to be.
1: <laughs> um, we we would uh, we would also encourage our uh, listeners to play along if they if they so choose.
0: Yeah, just to, just to drink at their leisure too.
1: So when the question is asked and and before the question is answered, they're pretty slow at answering the questions. So. It'll give you a chance to try and think up the answer yourself. Um, if you get it wrong, you have to drink. You have to take two. I mean, you don't have to. But you can if you, you want to play. It you on.
0: have to take two sips.
1: Fine. Preferably hard liquor, but we don't know your mm. particular situation. So whatever works for you. You take a drip, drink of tea if you like.
0: Hmm. Or of um, soap water. Hmm. All right, let's get to it. I'll go first. How about that? Go for it. All right. The Trial of the Chicago 7 was a film that was originally slated to be released in theaters, but alas, the COVID-19 pandemic caused its former distributor, Paramount Pictures, to offload the picture to Netflix. Can Mm -hmm. you tell me, within a $5 million range, how much Netflix paid to distribute the film?
1: Wow, good question. Hmm... And just to be clear for the listeners, we are not referring to anything when we answer these questions. These are straight off the top of the dome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the ceiling yep. of yep. my apartment as I you chew it. Again, within $5 million. Within $5 million. <laughs> okay. So this is a, this is i yeah, I'm going to say, um, 125 million.
0: What? <laughs> You are you are way off, buddy. Uh, the the for, for one thing, the film was produced for thirty five million dollars.
1: Really. Was it really okay?
0: Yeah. <laughs> for another, a Netflix spent a total of fifty six billion dollars. So, drink up, drink up, sucker So they spent
1: half that, less less yeah. than half that. Okay, well, less than half
0: that. Yeah.
1: All right, so I I foolishly wrote five questions instead of three. So I've I've got. The a choice to make
0: mm, yeah we've got we got a genius amount of choice
1: mmm okay which US president nominated mm. judge Julius Hoffman to a seat on district court for on the on the district court for the northern district of Illinois which US president which US president yeah
0: mmm I'm gonna say uh Harry Truman. no it was Eisenhower
1: ah uh, Damn it. That nice in, I believe in nineteen fifty-three. I was I was wondering whether to make that easier for you by saying nineteen fifty-three, but I was like, well, if you know you're US presidents.
0: Yeah. Well then I would have gotten it. I would have gotten it. But uh I, that was that was the second one. I, that wasn't too far off. Because uh when did a trooper get it in, get into or get out of office?
1: I'm not sure. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to guess Eisenhower if you just said fifty three, so
0: don't ask me. Well oh, I wouldn't. Truman's last year was 52, so... Very close. All right. Somewhat rare for a Sorkin production, this film lacks many of his recurring players. However, some of them have worked in Sorkin joints before this, including John Carroll Lynch. Can you tell me the other uh, Sorkin project Carroll Lynch has worked on?
1: Um, John Carroll Lynch played who in this? Can I ask that?
0: Yeah, he played um, the... Dylan Dillinger, what's his name? Oh, yeah, yeah, right.
1: Um, Mimi's brother from the Drew Carey show. Let me think. Let me think. Oh, I, know. I thought that was your guess. I was like, I was talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. That's where, when I first uh, <laughs> became acquainted with that particular actor. Um, I'm drinking already. Why am I doing that? Um, let's have a That's thing. A good question. This can be television or film, or or just film.
0: I said project, so interpret that as you will. Could be
1: anything. I can't picture him readily in a Sorkin production. Mm. Off the top of my head. So I'm just going to take a stab in the dark. Mm. A shot in the dark. We've most recently uh, experienced Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip in its entirety. I don't remember him featuring (laughs) there, so I'm going to cross that off. Is it just one thing that he's been in? uh yes i'll give
0: you that information no more questions
1: no more questions um okay where were you where were you mr lynch i am going to guess that he appeared in the newsroom oh you are incorrect he was in an episode of
0: the west wing damn it so, drink up. <laughs> so far, neither of us have gotten any of the questions on the first is asked.
1: All right, my turn. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so Jerry Rubin, who was portrayed in this film by Jeremy Strong, embarked on a career as a businessman in the mid-70s. Mm. Which of the defendants depicted in the film later worked as one of his salesmen selling a, a nutritional drink called WOW! With an exclamation mark.
0: Oh man!
1: <laughs>
0: oh, I can't. I can't even remember the other the, the ones I would guess. Who the other guys who don't really feature the film that much? Um. Well, I know that Rainey Davis worked as a venture capitalist. Uh So I'm gonna say him, Rainy Davis.
1: Uh, no, the answer intriguingly enough, is Bobby Seal? Isn't that weird? Oh, that is weird. <laughs>
0: Bobby Seal also did a cookbook.
1: Unless Wikipedia is incorrect, which is possible.
0: <laughs> that is very odd. we got to look up ads for this. All right, well, I took a drink. Here's the last one. This is a film that has been in development for quite a while. Can you tell me the year that Sorkid originally wrote the script? 2007. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Presumably, I, I knew I was fucked when I, you, you talked about how long this had been a development the Yes, the first question right, Yeah, the first question right. that anyone's got right
1: <laughs> So you ruined one of my questions because you already knew the answer So you would have got this correct if I had asked it what was the, already what was already indicated it? that you knew um, I was going to ask This is not the question, but I was going to ask which of the Chicago seven founded the venture capital company (laughs) foundation Mm. for a new humanity, which would have been Rennie Davis. Rennie Davis, yeah. Um, but instead I will ask one of my backup questions. Hmm. Intriguing. Um, this is not a difficult one necessarily. So you probably know. this. I'm going to get it wrong. In which year did Abby Hoffman die? Oh, fuck me. Um, was it 1992? No, three years
0: ah, after. Ni- 1989, yeah. Ah, that's what I thought originally. I was like, oh, fuck me, god damn it. God damn it. <laughs> so far on our grand point uh, system, you have 1.90 points. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and funnily enough, so when uh, Jerry Rubin reinvented himself as a businessman, mm. there was like a staged debate, I think in the late 70s. Yeah, I, read, I read about that. Hoffman and Rubin called like Yippee versus the Yuppie or something. <laughs> oh god. Uh, we didn't even
0: talk about that. We didn't even talk about that dumb fucking subplot about the, you know, agent provocateur that Jerry Rubin, you know. Yeah, yeah. With. God, yeah. Oh, uh, that's just so stupid. Especially because it's like, what? Ha, this this FBI agent is not doing her job. would <laughs> wouldn't she be pushing them to do more violence, not less? <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anyway.
1: All right, let's... uh, Are you ready to do bonus features? Let's do it. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus, features, bonus, bonus features.
0: Uh, I'll go first because I might have really quick as they have been for the last couple episodes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, I watched... films besides The Trial of the Chicago 7. Mm-hmm. One of them was a rewatch. Wow. I watched uh, Dawn of the Dead, the movie I talked about earlier this year. Great film. Uh, American Masterpiece. I would say one of the greatest horror films of all time. Maybe one of the greatest films of all time. Mm. Film that really accurately uh, and scarily portrays the uh, collapse of society, I think. Especially in its opening like 30 minutes or so.
1: Do you say it's more resonant now than ever?
0: Uh, no. (laughs) I don't think society is collapsing, personally.
1: (laughs) Pandemic zombies!
0: I mean, I do think that there is some resonance in the beginning. You know, there's this argument that that the scientist is having with this, like, random newscaster. It's basically just pandemonium, and that definitely did feel like the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, no one really knew what was happening. All the scientific stuff you heard on the news is just garbage for the most part, right? So, anyway. Uh, and then I also watched the the newest Spike Lee film. Oh, you did? Yeah, I watched David Byrne's American Utopia.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: <laughs> did I actually trick you with that? Or did you, did you actually forget?
1: I forgot, yeah. I was I was wondering if you just if you just watched the Five Bloods. That
0: was maybe I maybe I will at some point, but not this week. Uh, you know what? Uh, I, I like I like the Talking Heads a lot. Good band, you know. I Think we get agree on that.
1: Not good enough to be uh, named correctly by you, though. It's just Talking Heads. Uh,
0: talking whatever, who cares? Uh, I like David Byrne. He's an enjoyable presence. I think his you know modern stuff, whatever, who cares? Uh, but uh, you know, True Stories. It's a great movie. I agree. Uh, he's, he's a fun guy. Uh, this movie, uh, I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> uh, I think that um, a lot of the urgency and nervousness of talking to greatest, like, songs uh, is kind of leashed away by the, uh, you know, dullness of uh, typical Broadway melodies. And you can kind of, in the arrangements of the songs, it kind of uh, leashes them some of their, uh, you know, energy. <laughs> There's a lot of like garbage, like liberal uh, stuff. Like there's the long part in the middle of the show where he stops he's like, you know, vote people who vote in this country, it's it's only like 10% or something like that. Also, you can go register to vote in the lobby right now. And it's like, oh my god, I just wanna die. <laughs> so that wasn't the really great. Uh yeah, and I was I was kind of surprised. I, you know, so we've getting raves across the board, but uh thought it was only mildly enjoyable. Uh
1: I, I think I would have the same reaction. But I am curious to watch it. Oh, you should watch it then. Just so I can have the same reaction. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's it. That's all I watched. Because that was kind of my suspicion um, hearing about it and seeing like some of the performances that he did when it was actually on Broadway a couple of years ago or whatever it was. He did some performances on like The Late Show, which I wasn't particularly enamored with. You know, I think uh, David Burner, David Burner.
0: David Byrne used to feel weird, kind of a way. Those, you know, it was like charming but a little scary, right? I don't know if I'd say scary, but like, well, yeah. like there's anxiousness or, or nervousness to it. You know what I mean? Definitely. But there's yeah. a discomfort. But now it just feels like he's doing like cutesy weirdness. You know, like he's like he's like Art Uncle. Yes. Um. So I. Yeah, it did find that, especially appealing. So you whatever. don't, you don't,
1: you don't frequent his aggregated good news website. Reasons uh, no. to be cheerful. No. Hmm.
0: All right. Uh, let's hear it. What did you watch?
1: Uh, well, I doubled your. Uh, <clears clears> output. <throat> your what? Output. Yeah, we'll go with that. I doubled your output this week. And I watched four films. Wow, holy shit. Uh, I watched a couple of Miyazaki films, first of all. What? No, not that one. Daisuke Miyazaki. What? Not Ryu Miyazaki? No. The novelist, who's also directed
0: no. several films? Nope. Not not Goro Miyazaki? Nope. Hayao Miyazaki's son, who has directed several Studio Ghibli <laughs> productions? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Uh, Daisuke I Can't say I've heard of this guy
1: I can't say I had heard of him either Prior to watching these two films
0: Why did you decide to watch this particular
1: filmmaker? Oh, it, was like a, it, was, it was an online film festival That was free So I was just catching some oh. films I was showing So the first film I watched uh, Was a film of his from 2016 called Yamato in brackets California I think the Japanese title is California rendered in like, Katakana so it's a bit different Yeah, that's what I was getting at. And it's about an aspiring rapper in a small Japanese town that uh, happens to house a US military base. And in fact, it was still in operation up until like 2019, which is kind of amazing. Mm. And uh, the film quietly and somewhat obliquely explores Japan's identity crisis post-World War II and the relationship between Mm. the US and Japan in particular. As we follow this young woman struggling to find her place. And also, rapping and stuff. And also developing a friendship with a half Japanese, half American woman. So, the allegorical side of things, despite how I've uh, kind of introduced it, is not that heavy-handed in the final product. I think uh, Miyazaki has a quiet, delicate touch here. Performances are all really good. Um, but I was most struck with the photography. So we've we've criticised bad examples of digital c- cinematography in the past, mostly to do with um, mm. Netflix films. Um, but I want to say this film has beautiful digital to- photography. It really emphasises the strength of it. And what particularly appeals to me about digital is the the degre- degradation of the digital image. So when it's like pristine and and color graded to oblivion doesn't appeal Mm. to me, but when you lean into the way that, uh, the grain can form in low light situations and all that sort of stuff and relatively cheap kind of digital equipment, I, I I really dig that look. So this was, this was good stuff. So even just for the photography, I'd recommend it, but it's also a good film, but especially for the photography. Mm.
0: He, I, I was looking at this filmmaker because I noticed that he had watch these movies that I'd never heard of, and he had one that I kind of wanted to watch called Videophobia, I think. Yeah, that's just, just his. La-
1: that's his latest film. It's only just come out. But that—that that sounds I interesting to me can get
0: well. it for free online.
1: Um, but yeah, so so that film was good stuff. Or in the words of Sean Baker, a commendable micro budget that explores themes of colonization, identity, and female friendship. End quote.
0: Uh, dumb cuck, Sean Baker. <laughs>
1: uh, I, the other film I watched of his was a film from a couple of years later. Yeah, 2018. Tourism, which was originally actually supposed to be a video installation piece, and you can see why when you watch it. So it's about two young women who win a trip to Singapore, and mm-hmm. uh, a fair chunk of the film is presented via their social media posts, like them filming themselves on their phone. And a Mm. lot of the other stuff that isn't that just feels like a very small crew filming them um, as they travel throughout Singapore. Mm. Um, And you kind of think you know what you're getting into, uh, at least during the first stretch of the film, but it moves into a more reflective philosophical mode um, after an event occurs partway through the film, which I won't spoil. So there is definitely a political angle here as well, and you could be reductive about what the film is saying about young people and their phones. But I think the film is better than that. And I think it transcends that re- reductive reading. Um, but I do recommend both if you get the chance.
0: Well, luckily I have uh, access to a torrent site that allows me to download almost every you know Asian movie that's ever been made.
1: So There you go. Um, I watched... Uh, one of the early releases from Netflix's roster of uh, Christmas classics, future Christmas classics. <laughs> uh, I, I
0: actually have, I, I actually have a little bit of a story regarding this. Oh, good. Which is, uh, when Alicia and I were turning on the Netflix machine to watch the Great British Bakey Show this year, mm-hmm. we we're waiting for our roommate to join us, and we watched the trailer for this movie, and she was like, "Oh, you're gonna shut out your podcast," and I was like, "No, it looks terrible," and then she was like. <laughs> I think you will watch that, and I was like, I don't know, and then you ended up watching
1: it, so there you go. <laughs> I did indeed watch it. The film is called Holiday. Mmm, looked terrible. <laughs> and it stars uh, Emma Roberts of Julia Roberts fame. A, a, tra- a, a charmless actress. And some Australian guy who couldn't act very well. Oh, <laughs> he I mean, was Australian? I, I just assumed he was British, so They I didn't really listen to his accent. Jesus, man, he's completely Australian. <laughs>
0: I see, like scum. I hate, I hate, I hate that. I hate that. You know, y- y- you fucking scum from from the from the east and the west. You're coming coming with your your dumb axes and stealing our good American with way. <laughs> so look, no look, reason. look.
1: Obviously, this is a piece of shit. Clearly, <laughs> I would say it scrapes by as watchable, but my tolerance for romantic comedies is very high. So Mm. I can watch almost anything, but um, it's one of those, uh, I would classify it as like, it's one of those obscenely generic romantic comedies Mm. yet at the same time, it pretends to be subversive by having a character say at one point, you ready for this, you know, those cheesy romantic comedies, they're so unrealistic. It would never happen in real life. Never. Isn't that romantic? Isn't it romantic? Um, so it, it tries to be subversive, not just with that lamp shading, but also by trying to be more raunchy. So it's sort of in the mode of something like friends with benefits. So they have that anal classic. sex is
0: what you're saying?
1: No. I just oh, they, really talk, they talk about anal sex, actually. Well, there you go. that's oh, right. But, um, it's not, it's not, it doesn't actually occur. It's anything. not depicted. <laughs> it's not, it's not graphically depicted. <laughs> that's a shame. But it's, it's, like it's a
0: gay best friend that's been barely updated. Oh, very well. oh
1: no, no, no. I, I wish I wish he was gay as well. But unfortunately, he was merely black. <laughs> the great character <laughs> that Pete Davidson plays in stepping Up.
0: <laughs> or Set it Up, rather. Was that Pete Davidson? Yeah, man. Oh, my God. Was, that was like before I, I was really thinking about him. Yeah.
1: I think that's one of his first film roles, too. That was great. So, so very often they do go these days. They do go for the twofa, which is that the, mm. there's a heterosexual gay couple at the black. four, a white heterosexual couple at the four. Like,
0: like uh, not a white heterosexual couple at the four, but uh, always, view my baby has the black gay friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for instance, yes.
1: The last one I watched was Rebels of the Neon God, which is Simon Lang's first film. Hmm.
0: I've watched uh, about twenty minutes of that. <laughs> then I always have to watch the rest of it, but never did. You should watch the rest of it.
1: I think you'll Fine. like it. I need to I I feel like I would like uh Sai si yeah, Sai Ming Wang. So this so, definitely is in the lineage of uh the Taiwanese new wave, even though he's technically he's mm. the second wave. But mm. you do see a lot of um Hu Xiao Shen and um Edward Yang in this. Uh, although he does have a distinctive voice, at the same time, mm. but all the all the urban alienation, disconnection, disaffection stuff um, that you that we saw and enjoyed in something like Taipei Story, is on display here. Similar pacing, similar photography. Mm. Uh, this has a, a particularly fantastic soundtrack. I really liked the the theme in particular. But yeah, I would I would recommend you watch the rest of it, not just the first twenty minutes. Yeah. That's all I have to say.
0: And I watched them when I was an undergraduate student, too, so it's been quite a while. Mm. All right, I'm going to head off to bed, bro. So all good night. Right. And good night to you, the general, gentle listener.
1: Good night.